The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, Heritage. How are you guys doing today? Yeah? Good? That that was terrible. That was actually terrible. Let's try this again. Good morning, Heritage. There we go. How are you guys doing today? Okay, good. There we go. Hey, uh, a couple of quick announcements before we get things rolling. Some things that you need to know about uh, around the fellowship. My name is Pastor Jeremy Neff, and I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage, filling in for Jeff while he's at man camp. And, um, you know, today was a great day to volunteer in the, uh, the kids' wing because uh, Jeff's not here, so I plan on bombing it. Uh, I hope you guys are encouraged. Hey, um, uh, before we get started here, a couple of things that you need to know. Um, Newcomers meet and greet, that's coming up uh, next Sunday, April 10th, right after the service at Holy Joe's. So right down here at the end of the hallway is Holy Joe's Coffee Shop, and uh, there is an opportunity to meet sort of the staff if you're new here and you you kind of uh, are are not sure uh, how to get to know people, how to get familiar with them, get plugged in. Uh, Next Sunday, right after the service, make sure that you're at Holy Joe's to meet the pastors. Also, uh, women's spring retreat coming up. Now, the guys are gone this weekend, and, you know, I've been told, I've been, you know, duly warned that leading up to the men's retreat, there was lots and lots of stage time given to make sure that the guys were well informed so that they could get to man camp. So I'm supposed to really accentuate to you that the women also have a place and that there's an opportunity for them. I've got a little bit of a ring still going. If we could maybe, I don't know if we have to bring the volume down, but let's, let's try and do that. Hey, um, so women, make sure that you get signed up for that. It's April 29th, which is a Friday, through May 1st on a Sunday. Um, and the cost is $90. It includes two nights, five meals, And reservations are open through Sunday, April 24th, uh, until the limit is met. Now, there's only a certain number of spots available. So if you're thinking about it and you just haven't done it yet, you better lock that in before it fills up. Uh, Next, membership applications. Today's the deadline for that. If you've been waffling and kind of on the line and not sure, today's the day to seal that. Um, Those are due in today. And if you don't get it in, then uh, that means the next time, if you're, if you're going to consider membership, that you'll have to go through a sort of basics class where you find out about the church, our heart uh, for the Lord, and vision for how the church operates. And then um, you'll have to do that kind of all over again. Last but certainly not least, the lost and found. And many of you, as you were coming through the front doors, as you looked off to the right-hand side, you saw tables with like clothing and coffee cups and I don't know, there's a couple kids hanging out there. Uh, make sure that you go through that because after today, we're going to offer these things to Jesus. So uh, make sure if you're missing something, if you left your favorite coffee cup behind, if there's a, a nice North Face sweatshirt that you uh, uh, have been missing, make sure that you, you go and check that out and uh, pick that stuff up before it disappears. Lastly, we're going to be in Ephesians uh, chapter 6. So if you grab your Bibles and turn there, uh, I'd like to open up with prayer. If you don't have Bibles, raise your hand up high 
and there's some wonderful gentlemen who would love to put a Bible in your hands. Uh, if you don't own one, that's our gift to you. Uh, if you need a loaner, uh, feel free to borrow. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word today, it's really easy for us to just sort of fall into the routine of, um, of hearing without turning our hearts to you, without really thinking about and processing how it is that your word might apply to us. So God, we ask right now that your Holy Spirit would make us alive on the inside. That beyond the wisdom of men and the words of Jeremy, that we would be tuned in and listening for your voice. God, give us an ear to hear. Give us a heart that is ready and willing to obey. Lord, speak to and encourage and equip and confirm and correct and bless your people, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. As a personal side note, some of you who've been here uh, a while, many of you guys know that uh, it wasn't that long ago and I, I had surgery and was down for the count for about two weeks. At which time, you know, uh, my... my throat was really sore, and man, I, I was really checked out, and I just wanted to take a quick opportunity to say thank you to this church. Um, I cannot tell you the myriad of ways that me and my family were ministered to by the body here at Heritage. Uh, one, of the, one of the cool things is I went in for surgery, and when I woke up, uh, one of my former youth group um, gals ended up being the nurse who took care, took care of me when I woke up. Uh, one of my former helpers within the, the junior high ministry uh, is a maintenance guy at the hospital, and he came by and checked on me three times, prayed with me each time. Uh, upon returning home, the meals ministry kicked in, and, and couples from this church came and, and served me and my family meals to make sure that my wife didn't have uh, too much to do because taking care of me is about a full-time job anyway. And I, when I returned back to work, there was a coffee cup and several cards waiting on my desk of just people expressing love. And I just wanted you guys to know what a blessing it is to be so treasured by such a fantastic body of believers. And I, I just really, really appreciate that. So thank you. Thank you, Heritage. Hey, today we're going to be um, going through Ephesians 5. Now, I, I found it interesting that uh, Jeff taught all the prime passages and then he left the one on slavery to me. Um, I don't know what he's saying by that, but, you know, uh, I, I thought, oh, that, thank you, dear brother. <laughs> be warmed and be filled. Um, have, have you ever come to one of those passages that are in the Bible uh, that you think, what the heck does this have to do with me? Or even more than that, okay, I know this is in God's word and all, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't apply to me. Well, the good news is that's entirely what we're teaching today. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I, I thought about just sort of coming up here and, and, and saying something to the effect of, how many of you are slaves? Okay, and then when no hands come up, then I go, okay, well, then this passage doesn't apply to us. Let's all go home. Uh, 
but then I realized it's also the weekend of the men's retreat and all the wives would be here without the accountability of their husbands. So hands would go up everywhere and I'd have to teach it anyway. So um, I, I thought, well, I, I better just do due diligence. In all seriousness, some of the language of the Bible and some of the topics of the Bible may seem a little foreign to us because when we think Uh, Because we think that our generation has moved past many of the the old or what we would consider archaic systems of society or structures in society. Um, And and, and we we think that those customs of the ancient world are, are from a bygone era. Something from the past no longer applies to us. We suffer from what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. It's the idea that society has somehow moved on from the more base forms of living and relating to one another and, um, and that we've somehow ascended or achieved some higher level of, of living and that those things no longer are a factor in the modern world. Somehow our generation is not like the ancient world. And as a matter of fact, uh, I think a lot of young people, specifically high school to college age, that as they're thinking through their faith, they've been sort of handed the gospel and they've grown up under uh, their, their families and they're beginning to process and own their faith for themselves. They come to passages like this and they really wrestle. They really struggle. They struggle because when they, when they see slavery so, so clearly talked about in the Bible, they wonder... You know, that, this doesn't seem right. How could a holy and loving God, the God that I grew up with, the God that I was told about in youth group, and my parents, you know, talked to me about uh, the God of John three sixteen. How how could that God somehow put in the scriptures in the Word of God something that seems to so favor oppression in this manner? As a result. They not only can't relate, but they're often even offended because of how Paul talks about submitting to authority in a slave relationship. Their sensibilities are immediately offended, and the Bible gets relegated to an ancient manuscript that depicts for us another era of history, but has little to do with modern life. So it's my goal in our time together to accomplish a few things this morning. There's three things that I'd like to accomplish. For those of you that are note takers, these are going to be our three categories here. First of all, what the text does not say. What the text does not say. Second of all, what the text does say, right? And then thirdly, how can we possibly apply this to our lives? So, diving in, let's take a look. Let's just just read the passage here. Ephesians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, 
and there is no partiality with him. First of all, what the text does not say. Here's sort of the the big question for us to to wrestle with today, to to think through and really um, chew on and meditate on together. Does the Bible then give endorsement or even encourage slavery and the oppression of others? Does the Bible do that? We read this passage here and it says, you know, slaves be subject unto your masters. Does the Bible encourage slavery or endorse it? Now, to understand this, the answer to this question, I think we have to examine a few different areas. Uh, one of the first things that we need to do is define the terms being used here to make sure that we're, we're speaking the same language from the get-go and using the same terms in the same way. Oftentimes, you know, we, we talk about uh, words like slavery, for example, and because of our history in America, we read a certain level of spin on that that has to do with our cultural understanding of slavery. So it's good for us to define the terms. This is especially helpful when we're faced with passages that get shaded by history, like the chattel slavery of early America and Europe. So let's distinguish some of the terms and then try and sort some of this stuff out. Often when we think of slavery, we only have one image in our minds, and that's the massive oppression that we see from the 16th to the 19th century. It actually began in the 15th, but the 16th to the 19th, that period of time was, was especially oppressive. Great numbers of African-American people were forced into slavery and beaten. You all have seen the images, scarred backs, black people hanging from the trees, or giant plantations where there's one white master and his family and hordes of slaves who are being forced against their will to pick cotton or, you know, harvest peanuts or, or, or whatever. Those are the image that, images that I think come to our mind most readily. And these images haunt us for good reason. This form of slavery was the worst sort of oppression that could be inflicted upon a person, upon a person made in the image of God. However, there are some distinctions that make this period of slavery slightly different than the time period that Paul is referring to here. Not that those forms of slavery, that chattel slavery, didn't exist in that time. It most certainly did exist in the Roman Empire. But that wasn't, by and large, the norm or the the most common form of slavery in those days. So prior to this time, slaves in history were from every ethnic background. That, that is, you could be a Roman or a Greek or a Jew or an Ethiopian or whatever, right? And, and you were a, a part of a system where um, the whole economy had indentured servants, had slaves as a part of their household from every ethnic origin imaginable. And it was very common that, that the slaves adopted the lifestyle of the owner. They were dressed in the same classification as owners, unless they were laboring or working. They did the business of the owners. They managed the affairs of the owners. And uh, for all intents and purposes, it was sort of an upgrade from poverty 
to um, the, the status of wealthy living in, in uh, that society. So though there were forms of chattel slavery throughout the world, the most common form of slavery was not forced. In fact, it's estimated that there, was about, that there were about 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 60 million, okay? That was 30% of the Roman Empire's entire population. The overwhelming majority of these slaves were part of the economic system of the time. In those days, if you were overcome by debt or you needed to, to make a loan uh, to buy a piece of land, they didn't have a central banking system where you could go and say, hey, I'm a really hard worker, I've got this job, I've had it for X amount of years, I'm really stable, I pay all my bills, and so can you give me $30,000 so I can buy this chunk of land and farm it and, and turn a profit? You couldn't do that. So what you did is you went to the wealthy. You went to people who had the ability to loan money, and they would do so in return for your service as their servant or slave, okay? And that was the way that the economy worked. This was the overwhelming majority of these slaves, that 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. So you could take the loan in advance for a certain number of years of service, or often, being the servant of a wealthier family than your own meant living with and adopting their lifestyle as your own, as you integrate with their family. They gave you your own quarters. They fed you meals. Uh, you were, for all intents and purposes, a part of the family. As a matter of fact, there was a provision in the Roman law that not only could uh, a person have a slave in that fashion, but oftentimes slaves and masters would develop a very good relationship with one another. And, um, and Roman citizens who had extra privileges in society could then adopt a very good slave into their family and extend to them the rights of Roman citizenship. There's a great um, book out by Francis Lyle called uh, Citizens, Slaves, and Sons that explores the issue of slavery and uh, sonship in the Roman Empire and how that worked out. Now, um, this form of slavery was often viewed as a way to gain economic advantage in a society. Slavery during the time in which Paul writes this letter was quite different from the slavery that we see in early American history. It, it, it was, first of all, often voluntary. You entered into a contractual relationship with a master to, pro, pro, to provide a service for a resource, okay? Second of all, it often meant that you were gaining and not being oppressed. Slaves could buy property, they could have businesses, and they could have their own families. Number three, the advantages were that through your labor, you could eventually pay for freedom. Roman citizenship was also extended to you oftentimes, and um, if you establish a good relationship with the master of the house, you could even be adopted into their family. So does that sound like the same kind of slavery that we, that we hear about in the South? Definitely not. Now, that's not to say that that didn't exist because of wars. Oftentimes, people were carried away captive against their will. There were still slave traders, most of them um, in the later part of uh, uh, the, the about 600 A.D. on. It was mostly Muslim people who captured others because there was a lot of provision within the Quran 
for enslaving others. And so uh, Muslim slave traders were quite famous for, for raiding and pillaging these coastal towns around uh, the Mediterranean. And then also uh, spreading up into places like Ireland and just sacking whole towns and villages, carrying away people captive. So um, this was a very common form of slavery throughout the Roman Empire. At, at one point, the Roman Senate um, held a meeting. And, and in this meeting, they began to talk about, okay, well, here's the, here's the issue. Slavery is, is very widespread, 30% of the population, 60 million people. Um, and, and, and they all dress like their masters and live according to their standards. But we can't, we can't really tell now who's a master, who's a slave, how we're supposed to treat them in society because there's privileges extended to people who are citizens, who are upper class, and those who are slaves shouldn't be entitled to those privileges, right? That's what they said. So then one of the guys at the Senate said, hey, I, I know what we should do. We should mark all the slaves. We should give them some sort of mark that lets everybody know that they're slaves. And, and then an, a, an argument broke out, a debate broke out at that time. And, and the debate went something like this, well, okay, but, but if we mark them, then now we've got 60 million people that can spot one another. And this could really upset the balance of, of, of the upper class, because if they join together and they realize that, you know, that they're in this sort of economic state of, of oppression, then uh, you know, they, they might uh, go on what, what we would call a labor strike, right? They would join together and say, we're tired of being treated so poorly, you know, our, our masters don't treat us right. And so and they said, no, um, we, we definitely should not mark them <laughs> because this would not serve our purposes well. They determined that it was better that slaves were not distinguishable from the average member of society. Now, when we contrast this with the, the slavery that we think of as a part of the ugly chapter of American history that finally culminated in the Civil War, we can see some major, major differences. This form of slavery was distinct from Bible times in several ways. First of all, it was distinct in this. American slavery was based on race, okay? That is, it wasn't just slaves from every ethnicity. There was one particular ethnicity that was being singled out for slavery. It was actually uh, from a, 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 a belief in ethnic superiority. In fact, to the shame of many Christians, and oftentimes when this debate breaks out, we find ourselves sort of cornered logically in, in that the Bible was used to defend that form of slavery. Here's how the argument went. Uh, the Bible was used to make a case that, that people with black skin were the descendants of Cain from Genesis chapter 9, verse 25. In that passage, Noah curses Ham's son, his descendant, Canaan. And he says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now, later on, just one chapter later, in the next chapter, you have this sort of genealogy of the descendants of Noah, okay? It's often referred to as the table of nations, where you can see all the sort of roots of the national identities of, of really the world. And in that passage, 
you get the names of the brothers of Canaan. You have Canaan, and then you have his brother Cush, Egypt, and Put. Okay, now those three names all settled in the African region. Okay, it's what the root of the, the, the name Egypt comes from that, or Cush comes from uh, th- that identity. Now, um, here's the interesting thing, is in that passage, we find out that this curse that applied to Canaan, okay, one of the sons of Ham, said that he would be the servant of his brothers. But what people did is they, they sort of just jumbled all that up, and through unfamiliarity with scriptures, they said, oh, okay, um, so all black people, all the descendants of Ham that settled in the region of Africa, they are destined to be, because of the curse, and created by God to be slaves. When in fact, what it said is that Canaan would be a slave to his brothers. So even if you carry that down genealogically, you still just have the descendants of Canaan being servants to the slaves of people in Egypt or people in Cush, right? The, the logic doesn't play out, but, but that doesn't matter when you have an agenda, does it? When you want to justify what you're doing, you will find a way to make a case. This is why it is so important for us to be good Bible students, to think clearly about what the Scriptures actually say. As a consequence, people use this passage saying that this form of slavery was the will of God. Never mind the fact that the curse said nothing of marking Canaan. That was a reference to Cain in the Bible from Genesis chapter 4, long before the flood of Noah. And despite the fact that the tribes mentioned in Genesis 10 were the ones that Canaan was cursed to be a servant to, not the ones who were cursed to be servants. And as a result of a terrible twisting of Scripture, many commonly held that the white races were superior to black races and that black races were servants by God's design. This is not what's being talked about here in Ephesians 5. The second distinction is that American slavery was by force and theft. That is, people from European countries would travel to the coast of Africa and either purchase from mostly Muslim slave traders, um, they would purchase for themselves slaves to be shipped back to these other countries and be forced into lifelong servitude. Um, others would go to the, the coast of Africa and they would launch expeditions and, and steal whole villages of people themselves and bring them back. I, I was looking through pictures uh, even this morning, you know, I was, I was thinking about this and just trying to orient myself with the, the kind of suffering that that entailed. And, and man, um, some of the images that came up on Google Images were so incredibly graphic and haunting that it's hard to even put into words the kind of oppression that we're talking about. Bodies stacked upon bodies for months on end inside of ships. They would literally give them about an inch of space in between the bunk where they were chained, and they would lay down flat and be served their food like through these slats, and they would stack people up like corpses, like 10 people high in the gully of a ship. Awful circumstances. Many of them died in the process of even just trying to get to the Americas and then were sold into harsh circumstances that we can't even imagine. 
Now, this form of slavery where people are captured and like animals and stolen away from their homelands and brought to a, a different uh, place, this did happen in the ancient world, but it was actually looked down upon. It was actually considered a crime to man-steal, to steal another human being, unless it was during a time of war and then they would take um, captives uh, during, during war and that was considered a part of the spoils of war. In fact, in Roman society, slaves could purchase their own freedom under Ro- Roman law, a concept that African slaves of more recent history would never be able to do. So then, okay, the, then the question is, well then, what does the Bible say about slavery? Okay, I, I see what you're saying. There, is, there are some distinctions. On, on this side over here, we have sort of um, indebtedness that leads to you having to sort of sell the services that you can provide with your body through physical labor. Um, and, and then you get caught in this sort of economic battle of like, I owe this guy, and so now I have to work for him. There's, there's that. And then there's the, the chattel slavery, the, 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 the kind where people are stolen from their homeland. It's based on race. And they're considered to be subhuman in some way and forced for all of their lives to live and die as slaves to others. I, I see that there's the, 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 the two differences. But, but why doesn't the Bible just come out and say some really just straightforward things about how this works? Well, the truth of the matter is that the Bible does. If you're taking notes, there's some things that you need to know about slavery. First of all, Forced slavery was forbidden both by the early church and by the Old Testament. So let me give you a New Testament example. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Write that scripture down. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Let me, let me read to you what it says. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for, check this out, you ready? Enslavers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So he says, slavery, just like lying, just like, um, you know, these, these immoral practices, just like murder, is a sin. That's what it says. Just plain says it right there. Well, what about these Old Testament passages, some will say, about, you know, how how slavery was managed? Again, we have to separate out the two forms of slavery. One was a socioeconomic situation. The other was a forced servitude. Okay? And so here's how the Bible talks about forced servitude. Exodus chapter 2, verse 16, it says this, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Exodus chapter 2, verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So does that sound like God favors slavery? Does that sound like that? No, absolutely not. 
Two, second point. The use of slavery for economic advantage was also closely and tightly regulated by God because he knows the sinfulness of men, even though that was a way to keep the economy going. It was a way for people to continue to grow in an economic status. He knew how it could be taken advantage of. So he established laws or rules to govern even the socioeconomic part. In the ancient world, there was no central banking system. So you had to go and take out a loan on your life. In order to go, get a loan, you went to the wealthy. And, and that's why in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7, it's, it warns us that, that the rich rule over the poor and that the borrower is slave to the lender. Okay, now, we, we all say, yeah, that's a terrible situation. How many of you guys have debt? Raise your hand if you have debt. Who are you working for? It's the same thing, right? It's the exact same thing. You're still working to pay for money that is already spent, okay? Whether you are directly accountable to the one that you have uh, debt for, you're working under them, or, or whether or not you, know, you work a job and a portion of your paycheck goes to pay that debt, it's the same thing, okay? So this was the economic system of that time. Now, knowing the sinfulness of man and the obvious ways that this system could be abused, God placed limits on his people to protect them from becoming trapped in a sort of perpetual indentured service. And he did this through establishing a debt cycle. Okay? And this is how that worked. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 through 18, um, we're given some, some laws about indentured service, okay? And this debt cycle was a, a seven-year cycle. Six years you could labor. But on the seventh year, all debts would be forgiven, okay? Which meant there was a limit on the debt that you could accrue. Because, you know, a wealthy person on the fifth year of that cycle is not going to loan you seven years' worth of money, right? It's not going to do that. So the loans incrementally decreased the closer you got to that seven-year period, okay? And then God warns the people who are loaning money, says, hey, if you see that your brother's oppressed and you think, oh, man, the seventh year's coming, I'm not going to give him any money. God says, you're in sin if you do that. I'm going I'm to punish you for doing that. Don't think that in your heart even. He says, you help your brother out, okay? Now, in verses 12 through 18 of Deuteronomy chapter 15, let's read about what it says. It says this. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You don't just send him out empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. So give the guy bread, give him wine, send him out joyfully, take care of him. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. But if he says to you, I, I, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl, like a, a sewing awl, and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. 
And to your female slave you shall do the same. And it shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you. For at half the cost of a hired worker he has served you six years. And so the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Okay, so here's what he says. He says, every seven years, on the seventh year, you let all the slaves, all those who have debt, you let them all go free. And, and not just let them go free, like boot them out the door. Hey, you turkey, you know, I'm done with you. No, you bless them, right? You send them out with bread. You send them out with wine. You tell them, you know, good job. And you remember that you at one time were a slave in a foreign country. God redeemed you. And you have compassion on those people that are in a state of poverty, that have had to come to you for this loan, that are in this economic state. You have compassion on them. You love them on their way out. Matter of fact, I want you to love them so well that when they're with you, at the end of that six years, and they come to the seventh year, they go, I, I, I don't want to go anywhere. I, I just want to live with you. I, I like you. I want to be a part of your family. I love being here. And then it brings up the question, okay, well, um, if somebody stays, how do we know that they're not being oppressed? How do we know that their debt has really been forgiven and really been canceled and, and they've been turned free like God commanded them to? Well, there needed to be some sort of marking to say that their debt has been forgiven and they're here by choice and not by force. So what they would do is they would put you at the doorpost of the house in the presence of witnesses. They'd run an all through your earlobe and put an earring in the earlobe to mark you as, a, as what the New Testament refers to as a doulos, a bondservant. A, a, a servant who is there by choice, not by force. And so in this way, God is limiting the use of slavery, even for the socioeconomic advantage. He limits that. He says, man, I, I don't want people to live their entire lives in this state. That's not the way my kingdom works. That's not the value system that I have. I want love to rule in my kingdom and care for one another. This system protected you from falling into a life into lifelong service against your will. Clearly, the Bible does not favor or endorse the unloving oppression or enslavement of others. It does not do that. Not in the Old Testament and not in the New. You say, okay, okay. Jeremy, thank you so much for the history lesson. I'm glad that we've gone there through this massively technical um, you know, passage here, and this is wonderful, but um, so what? <laughs> What does Ephesians have to do with me? So now, now that we have a little bit of context, we can kind of sort out some of the terminology. Let's go back and take a look at what the passage says again. Let's see if it reads any differently. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Does that change the way that you read that a little bit? Now, Paul is essentially just continuing in this passage a previous idea his previous thoughts about how the kingdom of God affects our identity and impacts every area of life. 
Some of you here today are, are victims of some sort of childhood trauma or abuse. And when we talk about identity, one of the things that is so easy, and I think it's, it's accessible for us, tangible for us to really think about, is how your identity can shape your action in life. And if you grew up in an abusive situation, the, there are, there's an internal dialogue that happens about how you, how you think about yourself, how you think about others, the level at which you trust people that you love or give yourself to them, and the, the level at which you hold back from them. What you believe to be true about your identity gets lived out in life. And here in Ephesians, Paul is continuing on with this idea of our identity in Christ and how the kingdom of God affects our identity and impacts every area of life. Now, remember that the perspective of the early Christians wasn't just a matter of signing up for a religious value system. It wasn't just that they were saying, well, I'm, I'm joining this club now or this religious perspective now, and you know, now I'm adopting their point of view. That, that, that wasn't what it was about. It wasn't about getting moral boundaries. No, the perspective of the early Christians is that God is going to establish a righteous kingdom, and that those who have believed in Jesus' death on the cross for forgiveness of sins, and the, his resurrection from the dead for eternal life, now, presently, are looking to Jesus as the ultimate king above every kingdom on the earth. That's their perspective. So when they become Christians, they're assigning their loyalty to the highest of all kings. Does that make sense? So here these early Christians are, are, are now submitting to this higher authority, of, an authority above all authorities, a king above all kings, a lord above all lords. Okay? And in that process, they're sorting out now, okay, so how does this change life here? If I believe this to be true, that, that already I'm submitted to a king and whose, whose kingdom is coming, the already but not yet. If I'm submitting to that, then how does that affect the way that I think about life, my own internal struggles, what I say yes to or no to, my moral life, how does that affect society and marriage and parenting? How does that affect my station in life? And they're trying to sort this out. They're trying to understand this. So the question for these early believers is, how do we live as a part of God's kingdom already when the kingdoms of this world are so vastly different from God's kingdom? So Paul is therefore giving practical instruction about our attitudes towards sin, our life of self-control and worship, and the impact that this understanding has on our domestic life as well. So addressing the average household, which is what Paul has been doing previous to this, when he talked about marriage in Ephesians 5, and at the beginning of chapter 6 when he talked about parenting, he's addressing households now, house life under the kingdom of God, under that umbrella. And he says, you know, to husbands, love your wife like Christ loves the church. To, to wives, he says, love your husband like the church loves Christ. To kids, he says, honor the authority that God has given your parents. And to parents, he says, don't oppress your children. 
That's what he says. And now he turns to the only member of a household that's still left, to the household servant, to the household slave. He turns his attention to the other common member of the household, a servant or a slave, and, and he begins to answer their questions as well. He says, now the question is, how does an enslaved person, whether by debt or by force, live for the kingdom in a world where they are held captive and where they are obligated to another master? Okay. How can I have Jesus as master and king and, and be in this form of living in the present world where I have another master I'm supposed to please? who's asking me to do things that may or may not be righteous. Things that may or may not be easy for me to do, that may be in some ways or oftentimes is very oppressive. How do I deal with that? Or another way to say it, look, Paul, I, I know that my life is supposed to be representing this, this coming kingdom but you don't know how hard it is to serve God and work this job. How can I faithfully serve God when I'm not free? So Paul sets out to give hope and advice to God's kingdom people who live in a fallen and sinful world, who live under varying forms of economic and sometimes physical oppression. So look at the advice that Paul gives. First of all, let's take a look at the encouragement that he gives to slaves. Verse 5. If you're taking notes, there's, there's three things, sort of subcategories that I want you to see here. In verse 5, it's a change in attitude. Notice what he says. He says, obey with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. Not with eye service as people pleasers, as man pleasers. Okay, this is what he's saying. Don't fake it. Like, do it with a good heart. Do what's being asked of you with a good heart. Do it sincerely. Not just when the master is watching. Not just when people are pushing. You serve others, even those who oppress you, even those who are your enemies. You serve others out of a heart of love. Let your heart be changed in this process so that you can be, no matter whether you're bond whether you're slave or whether you're free, so that you can live freely. People aren't extracting from you service. You offer service because you are a servant of Jesus. So it's a change in attitude. Second of all, it's a change in direction. And you do this, quote unquote, as you would to Christ and as servants of Christ and as to the Lord and not to man. That's what he says. It's not just a, a change in attitude. You do it with a good heart, but it's a change in direction. You're not serving the master. You're serving the king. You're not serving the boss, the jefe. You're serving Jesus. So you, you do it as worship to him. You, you lift up your work. You lift up your labor. You lift up your service. You say, God, with all that is in me, I want to honor you and please you in what I'm doing. That's how you live free, even if you're not free. It's a change in attitude, a change in direction, and thirdly, it's a change in payoff. 
he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Verse 8. He will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. In other words, God will make sure that no matter what, you get a reward for your labor. And I want you to know, in the end, everything will be made right. If he takes advantage of you, I, I've got an equalizing justice system. I'm going to make sure it's made right. You have nothing to fear in that way. It's a change in payoff. You're not looking for the temporary reward of, of you know, monetary value or of freedom or respect or, or moving up in society. You're looking for the eternal reward of faithfulness to God and all that comes with it. That's what you're looking towards. So if you want to live as free, even though you're a slave, you have to change your attitude. Change your direction. You do it to the Lord and take a change in the payoff. Not the temporary payments that this world has to offer, but everything that God has to offer for all of eternity. And then now, check this out. He flips this around and he begins to talk not just to slaves, but also to masters, to owners of slaves. And he says this. Masters... And do the same to them and stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Okay, ready? Change in direction. He says to the masters, you do the same, same thing. Do, do, do the same thing as what? What were the previous verses? He says, um, he says, uh, oh, what does he say? <laughs> Here we go. Verse eight. Uh, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. When he talks about serving others and loving others, he's saying, you do this as unto the Lord. You do this as unto the Lord. In the same way that they're doing that unto you, you do the same. Okay? Love the people who are under your authority in the same way that I have loved you, and you're under my authority. Okay? Change in direction. Change in attitude. Stop threatening. He just says straight up, yeah, stop threatening. That's a command. Don't threaten them. That's not my heart. Don't do that. You're misrepresenting me. It's sinful. It's wrong. Don't threaten them. Thirdly, a change in payoff. You have a master too. Slave owner, master, you have a master too. And he will, record, he will reward you according to how you treat those under your authority. So just know, a day of reckoning is coming. What you do in this life matters. Be aware of that, because the king is going to sort it all out. So in the average first century household, Paul has now addressed everyone in it. Each person in society can now see with greater clarity that no matter what station you occupy in life, you can serve God and represent his kingdom in all that you say and do. Okay, so now we come to our third point. I remember you guys at the beginning, I said, I'm going to tell you what it doesn't say, then I'm going to tell you what it does say, and then I'm going to say, so what? Why does it matter? What are we going to do with that? Why are we here? Right? So what about today? How does this apply to you and to I? How can we apply it to our lives? First of all, if you're a note taker, I've got four points. 
that are my subpoints of my previous three points. Okay? These four points are, first of all, it applies to us economically. Do your job unto the Lord. Whether as an employee or as an employer, the slave-master relationship of the first century is very, very similar to the relationship of employee and employer in the present day. In fact, the New Testament book of Philemon, um, in that book, we, we see that Paul encourages Philemon to receive back a runaway slave, somebody who didn't pay back their debt, and then gotten caught, and they were now in jail, and they'd been converted to Christianity, and Paul happens to know Onesimus' master, and it's his friend. So he writes a letter, Philemon, to Onesimus' master, Philemon. And he says to him, I want you to receive him back, but don't receive him back as a slave. You receive him back as a brother. Matter of fact, not only as a brother, but I want you to forgive all of his debts. If you need to, go ahead and count that under my account, and I'll pay it off if that's, if that's what's necessary, but don't, re- don't forget that um, you also got saved because of me. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, however you weigh that out, Philemon, it's totally fine. Uh, but forgive his debt. Receive him as a brother. Love him. Accept him. Do you see the lack of oppression there? Do you see the, the relationship that God wills for the worker and the employer to have? One of love and honor and respect. Not out of duty or I service, but with a heart to worship God in all that we say and do. So it applies to us economically. Second of all, it applies to us personally. You see, the heart behind Paul's message sounds like this. In God's kingdom, there isn't any hierarchy other than a king and the kingdom he loves. So live out the reality of this in the present moment. The way that we treat one another matters to God. It matters to us personally. You know, one of the things that we see um, kind of without question in society is our default tendency to, to try and assess people and come up with a quick way of categorizing them. And we do this in a variety of ways. Well, you know, it, when, back in high school, it was like jock, nerd, right? We had these classifications of people. Once we got out of high school, we just carried that right on into adulthood. Poor, wealthy, good businessman. We start to classify people. We try and come up with one sweet little tag that we can put on them and that, that, that helps us to, to sum up a big idea about who they are as people. God says, do away with that. You do away with that because that's not what I've called you to. The heart behind Paul's message is this. We're all a part of God's kingdom. So don't be a respecter of persons. Because God is not a respecter of persons. Master, slave, doesn't matter. Same, same in his economy. Employer, employee, worthy of respect. Same economy. Don't let power get to your head. And don't let humiliation keep you down. You have value as a child of the king and as a brother or sister in the Lord. 
not based upon whether or not you are an entry-level employee at a job or whether or not you're the boss. God's will is that his people would extend grace to one another and see their role in society as an act of worship and service to him. Third thing, it applies morally. It applies morally. As members of God's already and not yet kingdom, we're called upon by God to free the oppressed. Now, living out the realization of the kingdom that is fully coming one day means taking action in our own lives against all forms of oppression that destroy the lives of those made in God's image. As Christians, we believe the worth of a life is determined by the one whose image that they bear, not their socioeconomic status. You know, two weeks ago, I had the wonderful privilege of taking um, a group of high schoolers over spring break up to Seattle. So I'm up in Seattle, and it's Palm Sunday, and so my thought is, okay, what I really, really want for our high schoolers is to go to an urban church, a, a church in the city, get a feel for like, okay, what's it like um, to, to be outside of the household, out of heritage, away in a foreign place, like a, a big city, and, and find a church in that place and, and, and attend there and be a part of it. So we, we got on the internet and we looked up some different churches. We found a downtown campus for a very well-known church, a big, you know, mega church, a guy named Judas Smith, for those of you who kind of keep track of those things. And, and so um, Judah Smith, not Judas, Judas is a very unpopular name, if you didn't know that. <laughs> Judah Smith, right? Um, Judah had a guest speaker that day. The guest speaker's name was Dr. John Perkins. Dr. Perkins was a very uh, well-known leader in the civil rights movement. And he was interviewing, he's now you know, an old man, but man, wiry and lively and you know, um, just an incredible, incredible personality. And so uh, there he is, and, and, and Judah, the pastor, asked Dr. Perkins this question, hey, knowing what I do about your story and the tremendous amount of suffering that you've suffered at the hands of white people, why are you here with this predominantly white congregation sharing and how is it that you could continue to love white people after all that they have done to you? <laughs> I was interested. <laughs> yeah, how? I mean, he'd been beaten so many times, you can't even imagine. There was one time he almost died in a jail cell at the hands of white police officers in the South who beat him bloody. So he responded by saying, he said, you know, when I was thrown in jail in the South and those men took to beating on me, I was in so much pain. I looked into the faces of those men. You know, I'm, I'm ex-military. And, 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 and I thought, if I had a grenade in that moment with some sort of nuclear component, I would have pulled the pen and destroyed us all. I hated those men. And then I realized that my sin would be exactly like theirs. And I said, oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
He went on to explain that the cure for oppression is not more power. It's not political pressure. It is, in fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite quotes from that day was this. He said, people ask me how I got involved in the civil rights movement. I tell them that because of the gospel, the civil rights movement found me. Here's what he's saying. Because I believe the things that Jesus has said, how could I not get involved? How could I not get involved? Because I believe what the gospel says about the worth and value of the people that God has made to bear his image. Because I believe what the Bible says about justice, about that coming kingdom that is to be represented through the kingdom that now is, the already which is not yet. Because I believe those things to be true, how could I not get involved? I had to do something. Matter of fact, Dr. Perkins had a life here on the West Coast free of oppression. Then he got saved. He began to visit some hospitals with some friends and he ran into a black man who had been severely abused. And God called him in that moment to go back home to the South and to begin to minister along the, alongside of those that were suffering under oppression. You know, and this is a story that's been repeated throughout history. History is full of examples of people who have understood the gospel and its implications for life here as it relates to slavery and oppression. You might think of some names like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or Abraham Lincoln or William Wilberforce. Matter of fact, one of the the stories that gets told about St. Patrick is that he sold himself into slavery so he could go to Ireland and bring the gospel to those who were being enslaved. And he's not the only one who did that. There are others throughout church history that because of the call of the gospel on their lives, because of God's heart at work through them, they sold their lives into slavery so that they could go and minister to slaves. There's one whole group called the Moravians. That it was their common practice to sell themselves into slavery. Because of them, the gospel was spread throughout the world, specifically in New Hebrides and uh, the Americas. When we understand God's heart for his people, all of a sudden, slavery doesn't make any sense anymore, does it? Because we're Christians, we have to take a stand against all ungodly forms of oppression. Lastly, this is my final of my four points of my three points. It's this. It applies to us eschatologically. That is, it has to do with our future, okay? It's estimated right now that the world has 27.5 million, 27.5 million slaves currently, and some, some estimates go as high as 35 million slaves. The majority of which can be found in places like India, in the Middle East. There are still men stealers out there who capture people, take them away, and oppress them. Very common in the Middle East. 
Among the slaves that now exist, there's varying forms of slavery. Some of it is the indentured service that we talked about, or forced labor. In many areas, it's the forced slavery against the will of those who are enslaved. Many are trapped in situations that they cannot possibly get out of. And sadly, even here in America, the same thing is still happening. Most of the time it happens to people who come into our country looking for economic advantage and then get sold onto some sort of a farm. They're without a green card, doing manual labor every day. They're trapped in an economic situation that they cannot get out of. If they don't work, they get turned in and deported. If they do work, they have to suffer in silence. This is a reality in the world that we live in today. This is not old world stuff. This is present time still happening currently. So the question is, how do we help these people that are stuck in these situations? We cannot snap our fingers and make slavery go away. We can fight against it. We can add political pressure. We can do that. But it's, it doesn't happen overnight. And people are suffering right now, currently. How do we encourage our brothers and sisters that are trapped on some farm picking fruit? That are housemaids and gardeners. How do we encourage our brothers and sisters trapped in these economic situations? The Bible gives hope to them. The Bible gives hope to those that live in these harsh conditions by saying in the book of Revelation, chapter 18, verses 11 through 13, that there's coming a day when God will judge the economic system of this world, which he summarizes as Babylon. And it says that the merchants will weep as the city is burning, as Babylon's economic system is burning. And all the slaves are set free and their captors are no more. God will destroy the economy of the enemy and all those that profited from it will weep over its collapse. The Bible reminds us that there's coming a day where the only economy we know is that of the kingdom. Where slavery and hierarchy will be done away with and all that is wrong with the world will be made right. No matter the circumstance you live in now, it's not where you will live forever. I'd like to close with this image that the Bible gives us from the book of Revelation in chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. It says this, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, <clears throat> Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
And he said to me, it's done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The Bible reminds us that there is coming a day where these words are not just poetic imagery. They are a present reality. And all those who have been oppressed will be set free. Because the gospel is true, those who live oppressed and enslaved can live as those who are free. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these important words. Thank you for the reality that no one goes unnoticed by you. That even those who suffer the most and have the least are cared for by you. Lord, where there's injustice, injustice, would you call us to take action and show us our part? Where we have opportunity to minister comfort to those who are presently suffering, God, enable us by your spirit to do so. Help us to see the value in one another and to live according to the kingdom that's coming and its rules. To live and to love like the king who gave himself for us that we might be made free. Father, place a holy calling upon our lives to not just be those who theorize about those that are oppressed, but those who are willing and able and ready to be active in any way that you call us to be. Bless your people now. Take your word, Lord. Only the Holy Spirit can do this. Make alive those things that apply to us today and send us out filled, Lord, with your word, shaped by your truth. And we ask this, in the name of and for the glory of Jesus. Would you stand real quick with me? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven and give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever Amen.